Colton, I decided to treat myself recently. And what I have can only be, be described as my haul. Your haul? My haul. My haul in that I decided I have been working very hard. It has been a very long year. And it's April. It's it's early in the year. This year has never ended. And so I decided that I would get myself every Atla comic book that has been made so far. And if there is a library edition, I'm upgrading to library edition because I want all that good extra content. That is so extra. Yep. And I'm so envious. Yep. So I have. Hold on. This is heavy. This is just some of it. That is so much. It is so great. And I bought myself the Cora ones as well. So the Rift, Imbalance, North and South, Smoke and Shadow, the Lost Adventures. Lost Adventures takes place during books one through technically four. So a little bit after the show ends and before they started the comic books. Did these all come in one box? Yeah. That I made my husband must carry it. Have been <laughs> so heavy. Oh my God. It's so heavy. Like I can't I this is I this is four of them and I'm like struggling. The pile is so big. Oh. And then yeah, so that's four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine of those. And the latest series that they've had come out, which are Katara and the Pirate Silver, her uh, pirate adventure where Katara becomes a pirate, and Toph's Metal Bending Academy. So these are all beautiful, but it's so much. That's a whole, you didn't buy a couple of books; you bought a shelf. Yeah, I, 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 I bought a whole shelf. You're going to need to like specialty acquire a bookshelf just for this collection of books. Oh, it's worth it. I actually cleaned off a whole shelf just for this. Absolutely worth it. I already have like so many things that can like to contribute to the podcast, of course. Um, I've been like reading them as I've been like working on other like when I'm listening sometimes it's something good to read and they have uh, notes from the creators in the margins Notes in the margins. So, like, you're big on your art books. I'm big on this. Like, this is lore up the wazoo. Because there is some really interesting items that create perspectives on why characters may have done something the way that they did or a little bit deeper into how they interact with another character. And it's really, it's really cool. It takes, you know, I mean, these characters are traveling every day. And I think you said early on, like, this takes place over six months for the most part. Yeah. And so we get most of the days, but not all of them. And now you have more. I have more. I wonder if you have if you now have more days than not, I don't know. Probably, maybe you could obsessively go and 
like track across all of the episodes, how much time passes in each episode. That would be terrifying and very hard to do. And add it up and see just, you know, like how much time passes on the calendar, how much time you see pass in the show and and do some calculations. I will say, let's I not if forget. the internet's done that. Let's not forget the like uh, chibi episodes of Atla that you have to work in there as well. Oh, yeah. I forgot about those. Yep. Uh, there's, there's just so much content and now I have more of it and I'm very happy. (laughs) I, that I am having trouble wrapping my brain around how much you have. I had a, I, I had a problem making a decision. And so I said, I'm going to take the decision out of the problem and just get all of them. I never buy things for myself. And, uh, this is what I'm doing. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. Hello, and welcome to The Pie Show with your hosts. I'm Colton. And I'm Kelly. And this week, we are talking about Book 2, Chapter 6. The Blind Bandit. Yes. One of yes, Kelly's yes. favorite episodes. She's bouncing up and down right now. <laughs> In this episode, Aang discovers a possible earthbending mentor at an underground tournament. Yes. The best way. Go, go, get it out. Come on. I know you're just, you're so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited for this episode. I've been counting down because, like I've said, like I, I say my girls, you know? And mm-hmm. uh, Azula, yeah, she my girl, but also the blind bandit is my girl. There was like that uh, meme thing a few years ago where you had to pick three characters that, you know, basically make up your personality type of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Toph was one of mine. That is that tough love uh, type of person is who I am overly confident uh yeah that's 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 me i love it do you remember from i'm not gonna say from one because i don't remember because time is fake (laughs) but there was in the past going around that like who you are in every fandom quiz and it was like a hundred quiz it was so long but it gave such detailed responses yes was tough on your like top five weirdly enough azula was my top azula was i was i was in a really like apparently not great place if i was getting azula and various other people like ozai was in the top there um <laughs> so i was having a bad day when i took that quiz but Toph was up there <laughs> i don't remember who my top was i know who your top was oh for atla i know who my top was for atla i don't remember who my top was like all around I don't remember that either for me. I remember for Atla, my top was Iroh. Yes. And you had never seen the show before. And I had and you no said, idea. Is that And then I good? watched the show and I was like, <laughs> oh, well. And I said, <laughs> mine you, was quiz. <laughs> and I told you mine was Azula. And then yeah, you watched the uh, show and went, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. And much like Iroh, I fear you. <laughs> but uh, truly, I love Toph. I love 
what she brings to the team and the show. And I am so happy that the creatives went with her as the character design because she wasn't originally supposed to be uh, the small blind girl that she is. She was supposed to be a teenage guy. Big burly dude. Big burly dude. They ended up recycling that character model for Bolin and Cora. But they loved the voice actress who played Meng, and they had this this idea came to them, and it, it works. It just works so well. And I will say it was one of the first times that I saw a female character on screen that I was like, I can identify with that. She is unapologetically herself. And so, yeah, there's going to be a lot of tough love here because... That is such a strong uh, sentiment for me, that being unapologetically yourself. I just have a question. I have a question for you about this recap. Okay. On the title sequence music, what music is it? Is it Azula's theme or is it the Fire Nation theme? Kind of both. Azula's theme kind of is the Fire Nation theme. Yeah. Just in a higher register and, and orchestrated a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um and and harmonized with differently. But like the core melody is the same as like bum bum bum. Yeah. Like that's you hear that as the Fire Nation, but if you throw it way high and you put some str- like eerie strings on top of it, it turns into Azula's theme. Okay. I just thought it was really curious that music choice before this episode. Yeah, because we don't really see much of either of them. Yeah, there's at all. Yeah, not at all. I think it. Uh, I think it plays to the drama of the situation mm-hmm. because the recap itself builds this episode as like you're gonna meet Ang's future Earthbending master. Mm-hmm. That's all that's discussed, and. On the one hand, having the Fire Nation theme, having Azula's theme play after that recap before you get into the episode, it reminds you emotionally of the urgency that we're under mm-hmm. because the Fire Nation is right on our tails. But at the same time, it is, you know, knowing what happens in the episode, it's a red herring. It's, it's you know, there is no Fire Nation in this episode, but you go into it expecting Fire Nation in this episode. Yeah. And that's not what you get. And so it, it sets you on edge. It makes you uneasy going into this situation that is completely different from what you're expecting okay okay i i like that i think i think you also mentioned about the power of it and giving it that power beforehand and i think with this episode we also meet a very powerful bender and so i'm wondering if that's also an allusion to that we're going to meet someone who is little but packs a punch. Mm. And it, it, yeah. that just, the thought just came to me when you were talking. So, yeah, well, I mean, Azula and Toph do both kind of play on that, you know, you're not expecting me to be mm-hmm. who I am. Yeah. They're both really game changers to what has already been set in motion. Yeah, they, they cause a paradigm shift with their arrival. And it almost feels like with that paradigm shift, paradigm shift that azula shifts it one way real hard at the beginning of this season and you start to wonder how are they going to be able to go up against someone as strong as that and with you know the two other people she brings in 
And then this episode kind of course corrects that because you have someone who is also incredibly strong and powerful now added to the team to continue forward. It's going to be one amazing showdown eventually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But that was kind of what was going. I needed to work out that music. thought. That was a good catch because it is unexpected. Yeah. I'm really trying to pay attention to that now. We get a lot of new characters this episode. And so let's start. I kind of went order of appearance. Um, We get Master Yu, who is having flyers handed out to try his earthbending school. It's so... One free um, lesson. Tiger Shulman. Do you you have that over there? It's like a karate school? No, we it's do like, not. It's, in my area, it's this like franchise karate school. They do like commercials on TV. Mm. They have dojos in half the towns in, in the area. And stuff like yeah. that. It's they very actually, like commercialized. They said that the inspiration for Master Yu and his school was those like mini mart dojos. Yeah. And, you know, by sheer coincidence, I was watching the Karate Kid last ah. night. <laughs> and. Master Yu's first lesson, like where he has everybody lined up in like military formation and they're going straight to fighting and it's all about like combat and, and, you know, eliminating your opponent. It's Cobra Kai. (laughs) As someone who has watched Cobra Kai on Netflix. Yes, it's Cobra Kai. Okay. I have not watched Cobra Kai. I need to watch Cobra Kai, but (laughs) like I'm talking about like first Karate Kid movie. True. It's the same energy. True. Yeah, it really gives off that, like, um, kind of sleazy, like, you know, here, you can get all these accessories, too, but you have to buy them through the school, and mm-hmm. they're required for the class. Mm-hmm. The class prices are cheap. The equipment is high. Mm-hmm. And and don't forget the, the fees to test to advance to the next level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, I, I, as someone who has never taken a class in a martial art ever... Um, I don't know this from personal experience. Just put that I out there. I took two days of Taekwondo at a mini mart dojo <laughs> and I broke my toe on the second day. Oh my God. And I never went back. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. And this is not to say that there aren't good studios, good dojos out there. Oh, that's, this that's... is this is purely based off of like the ones that give it a bad name. This is a stereotype. Yes. Yes. The one that I went to both times, <laughs> both classes, was definitely of this variety. Gotcha. So yeah, we got Master Yu, and uh, then once we get into Earth Rumble 6... What happened to Earth Rumbles 1 through 5? <laughs> I don't know, but I, I need to know about them now. Um, but let's get into... We'll get into Earth Rumble 6 later. Uh, and more of the details there. But I just want to go about the characters. We're introduced to the boulder. Do you smell what the boulder's cooking? I do smell what the boulder's cooking. It's the rock. It's just, he's just the rock. He truly was based on the rock and apparently voiced by one of his rivals. Wait, really? Yeah. So he's voiced by Mick Mankind Foley, one of the rock's biggest rivals and closest friends in wrestling. I, I know nothing about wrestling. I just... I, I don't know much. I have friends who are really into it, but um, that was in the... That was on the wiki, and I thought that was a really cool thing, because they did want The Rock to voice it. 
I like The Rock as an actor. Yeah. I Scorpion King was great. <laughs> Scorpion King? Yeah. Okay. The Boulder, personally, I, I I love this character. I love the... The Boulder is unsure of if he the wants... The third person is so amazing. <laughs> I personally have said that in my own home of like, the boulder is conflicted. The boulder <laughs> is hungry. This in is this what- scenario, are you the boulder? Yes. <laughs> this is what my husband has to deal with. Of course, he had to like rewatch with me first before he could really get it. You're so small. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but believe me, I, I, I am, I'm tough like a boulder. <laughs> okay, Pebble. <laughs> um... Other characters we have. The big bad hippo. The big bad hippo, who has many fans. Actually, one of the kids that Katara beats up, his haircut is based off of the hippo. I did not catch that. Yeah, it's a, it's a little thing. Like, to show, you know, these are big wrestling fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fire Nation guy. I did catch a thing with Fire, Fire Nation, Nation guy's Man. hair. Yeah, Fire Nation man. He has Iroh's beard. He does. That's such an iconic look for Iroh. Like, they'll show it, like, later when there's, like, an actor who who impersonates Iroh. That's the beard that they go for. Yeah, and we I think we've seen other members of the Fire Nation with that beard style. Mm-hmm. But just the attention to detail. I, I respect the attention to detail in the theatricality of the Earth Rumble 6 wrestlers. I think what's really interesting is that there's also a Russian type accent on him, the Fire Nation man, which is very, um, I mean, when, so I do know some bits about wrestling and this is because I got really into the show Glow, which is like the glorious, the ladies of wrestling. Um, And there were a lot of like Cold War villain characters. And that's what this guy is. That's what that's what he's the stand in for. You know, you always have to have your villain in the wrestling ring. And to have that like really attention to detail with the history of wrestling in mind. It's really cool. Yeah, I don't know anything about wrestling. So my mind went to uh, Ivan Drago. Mm hmm. From Rocky. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. 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 But I, I I like Fire Nation guy. <laughs> He's an entertaining character. I mean, so, yeah, a little bit about Earth Rumble 6. I mean, this is just so camp. All of it. It's such a this is where a child thinks they can find their master. Like only a child could think this way. This is where we remember. These are children making these decisions. Yeah, and I think if Sokka had his way, they'd make more of these decisions. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he'd enter Katara in in a heartbeat. Okay? (laughs) If that's how they had to choose all the masters for Aang's teachings in the future, he'd be like, all right, Katara, here you go. He'd he'd have made her an elaborate costume or something, you know, and written her this entire backstory. She will have read none of it and said, I'm just going to get by on my skills alone. And Sokka would have an entire fit about how, no, you need to have a character and a motivation. And if the story's not good enough, you just won't win. So I have no basis for saying this outside of this conversation. Mm-hmm. And if I'm wrong, I do not want you to correct me because okay. there's a chance you might know what the actual canon history is. But I am convinced 
that Sokka invents the sport of pro bending, <laughs> trying to recapture the experience of watching this wrestling match because it's just so similar. Yes, yes. You look at the you look at the arena and how it's set up and isolated, and yeah, it is really similar. Like this is where the roots are. I and I think that Sokka is clever enough, you know, to develop an entire sport around making bending fights inclusive to everybody. Um, invent because he is an inventor. He would invent an entire sport. New headcanon. Don't correct me if I'm wrong. I won't tell you either way. Cool. Now, the moment you've all been waiting for. The Boulder versus your champion, the Blind the moment she enters the ring there is just a hard like shift of emotions because you've got this great buildup of all these big guys knocking each other out um hitting each other the yelling like you see Sokka get more and more into it Katara Aang get into it and then they bring on the moment you've all been waiting for, the blind bandit, this small blind girl in front of, is going to face the guy who has just taken down everyone else ahead of her. And there's just, it's everyone's stunned. But I love how they say the moment you've all been waiting for to preface the character who waits and listens, because this is the moment we've all been waiting for. And... <sighs> I don't even, don't even know where to begin for a second. But there, um, she enters the ring and there's this quiet first. And then she opens her mouth and there is this confidence and maniacal cackle, which just such an inspiration to me as a young child. And I would classify my own laugh as a cackle. You cackle. I do cackle. And you wonder, all right, what is it about her that she can take down the boulder? And they show us seismic sense. That's what the way she sees, the way she bends is called. It's her seismic sense. And the whole world grays out. The, it radi- the, mo- the impact of the boulder radiates out to her. And you see this small smirk and her motion is small fluid, natural, and just in comparison to the effort that we see, like the other guys is that this big punches and effort everywhere. Hers are just precise. And it just felt this is the closest style we see to Boomies who can bend with just his nose. I, I found myself thinking in this moment that it's kind of remarkable that She's such a fan favorite in the wrestling crowd because all of the other wrestlers that we see the boulder fight, you know, building up the boulder as this champion of the group, they're all exhibiting such exertion. They're putting on a show in a way that, you know, it it communicates to us that what they're doing is difficult. And Toph is so effortless about everything. It's on it like it's... It's wonderful to watch as, you know, someone who doesn't even break, like watching someone who is so good, they don't even break a sweat. But, you know, from a wrestling standpoint, it's kind of boring. Yeah. It's so effective. There's no, there's no show to it. She doesn't dress it up very much. She just does it and is just so ridiculously competent. Which makes me wonder if she's somewhat lost interest in this all. Because 
she can play it up. And she does at some point. She goes, ha, 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 the pebble. Like, she knows how to play it up when, like, she's set up to hit it out of the park, you know? When when the announcer sets her up, when the boulder sets her up for her, you know, here she gets the punchline. She's the star. She gets it. But it almost kind of seems like there's the little surprise of like, oh, what are you going to try this time? You're not going to win, but what are you going to try? But there's not as much, there's not as much of a spark in her yet. Yeah. I do want to point out, though, that when she goes after the boulder, makes him do, do a split. She attacks his root. Yeah, she does. And everything about her style is so unlike all of the other earthbenders, not just that we're seeing in the ring, but that we've seen to this point. She has her own earthbending style. Like you said, it's much closer to Boomy's, but the way she moves her arms is very fluid. The way she does her leg work is kind of, it's it's pointed in a way that to me, her leg work is reminiscent of firebending and her arm work is somewhat reminiscent of waterbending. It's really interesting that you say that because I saw your note about that and I was like, you know what, I need to watch, I need to watch her again and look for it. And it is reminiscent of those up to a point. And it's literally a point. She moves her torso very similar to an airbender like Aang when he's moving when he's moving through groups of people in a battle. But it is at the very end that she creates her impact. She is very low impact until the last possible second. She does the same with her leg movements. And it is very subtle until she gives a nice little jab at the end. It's like it's like a follow through when you're shooting a basketball. It's all in the wrist. It's not how much you push your arms in a way like that's a part of it. But it's the it's the wrist. It's the small little movements at the end that give her her power. She's singing from the diaphragm. Not, you know, through her throat. She's taking wisdom from many places. No, she's not. I know why you say that. She doesn't know that she is. Mm, not really. I, I, I would say, no, she's not taking wisdom from many places. She, is, she has taken wisdom from one place. She has synthesized a style that incorporates aspects of other forms of bending, despite the fact that she didn't have exposure to the other forms of bending. Or... She has learned the truest form of bending, which is closest to nature, and nature has more balance than the humans can manage. That's what I was attempting to say. I think we're doing <laughs> We're doing thing. that thing again? Yeah, because that's kind of what I was trying to say, but from the other side. Okay, because I was like, she's only, she, she tells us that she's learned from the badger moles, and purely from the badger moles, and her style is unique to her. Um... And I would say that while we may be able to see elements of what like water bending movements or fire bending movements or anything like that, I think she is she one would say, nah, this is me. And two, uh, she purely has condensed her style and she doesn't really it takes a lot for her to change her style. And we see that when she first battles Aang. So what I was attempting to say was because she does have that uncommon education, she's not carrying the influences and assumptions of a line of earthbending teaching. Yes. 
because of her education from the badger moles, she is engaging in a, like you said it, like a more pure form of earthbending. Part of what makes it, because it is more pure, it has elements that we identify from other bending styles because it's from nature. Like that's. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. You and I are on the same page. Yeah. I'm just. I'm I'm looking at it and saying, look, there are other bending styles. It's more pure. And you're saying it's more pure. So it looks like other bendings. But like, yes. it's the same thing. Same thing. We're just coming at it from different angles. I'm coming at it from the angle of a human living in that world. <laughs> you're coming at it from the angle of a spirit living in that world. <laughs> oh, no, it's not spirit world. This Too late. <laughs> but yes, yes, it is. And I, I like what you say about her her jabs and her flourishes because she does never move more mm-hmm. than she needs to. It's a conservation of energy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, beyond that, also, if if you see through vibrations in the ground, you're not going to move more than you absolutely have to. Yep. Because not only like you're you're increasing your ability to see the world around you, but also I do think that most humans have a natural ability to, to a lesser degree, gather that same information. And so now you're also denying people that. Mm. I feel like it would also shift her perspective a lot. She wouldn't be able to read the room as well. Yeah. Because if you're constantly moving, you can't stop to take a look around at your senses. So, which is why Aang throws her so off balance. He doesn't touch the ground. And this is the first time she calls him Twinkle Toes. I forgot it was in the first episode. Yeah, I love it. Feels very me and you. (laughs) I'm pretty sure you've called me Twinkle Toes with me not getting the reference. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I have. Let's talk about their fight. Okay. Yes. So their fight, I was talking earlier about how there's kind of like a little bit lack of spark when she starts to fight the boulder. It's really, it seems kind of going through the motions like... She's like, oh, okay, you're going to try that move. Eh, Knock you to the side. I win again. But then they say, all right, does anybody else want to fight our reigning champion? And and Aang throws himself into the ring. And she's continuing to kind of go through the motions and be like, he says, I don't want to fight you. And she goes, no, I'm going to fight you. You're going to lose. Everybody loses. And the moment where Toph takes that first strike and Aang lifts off the ground and she's like, I can't find him. Where is he? You see it go over her face a little, the confusion and the not ready for it. And her second strike is stronger because she wasn't ready for anything other than the normal. And it's really interesting because I think this is where we start to see Toph realizing that maybe there's something more. Maybe there is something more out there. And she's kind of frustrated when she loses to Aang. She's frustrated because she always wins. She's embarrassed. uh, And she wants to know why she lost and why it felt different. Well, he took her thing from her. Yeah. He took her ability to see and he used that to beat her. Yeah, but he also, he challenged her in a way she has not been challenged before. And it frustrated her to feel like there was a limitation there because it's never happened to her before. And it frustrated her because I think she wanted to know, all right, how do I fight this next time? And she didn't know how she was going to do it again. Like, how do you recreate that and win? I mean, I think it frustrated her for a different reason, but... Go ahead. That's beside the point. Go ahead. I think it frustrated her because that was probably one of the first times 
or at least in a long time, where she was forced to confront the fact that maybe her family was right. In what way? She encountered someone that she couldn't understand, that she couldn't overcome. Mm. Not only did he knock her out of the ring, he knocked her, like, flat on her butt. Yeah. I think... I think let's let's just keep adding to these list of frustrations Toph had with this. Yeah. Uh, I think also she's frustrated that I don't think she realized how much this meant to her because mm. she had kind of been going through the motions and stuff like that. And she lost and she's like, I lost the stupid thing that I always win and didn't realize how much it mattered. Yeah. To have that stupid belt and get the cheers at the end of the day. On top of all of that, Aang doesn't really break a sweat in this fight. He has a moment where he's like, oh, no, I got to focus. But Mm -hmm. it's when he decides to turn it on, it's kind of effortless for him in a similar way that it's effortless for her. Yep. With everyone else. Yep. This is her first nemesis. Yeah. Which is an interesting way to talk about the future Earthbending Master to the Avatar. His first, her first nemesis. The Avatar. I think, you know, we're, we're figuring this out kind of live on the spot here. Yeah. But I, th- I think that that idea will be an interesting thing to revisit in a couple of the later episodes. Yeah, probably. They, they do have, from Toph's perspective, they do have a bit of beef between yep. them. Yep. Yep. Oh, cool. I like that I said that. I like that the, that thought came into my head. We yeah, that will was a good revisit thought. that. We're gonna. I, I already have in my head when we're gonna. When I want to come back to that, <laughs> there will probably be more times between now and then. And like I said, this is the first time that she starts to shift how she bends because she's been. She's only had to do things a certain way for a while, and this is the first time she's had to adjust. And I definitely will be looking out for future times where she adjusts her style because Toph is not a character. She is very stubborn, and she's not someone who really adapts to other people well or other situations well sometimes. So those moments where she chooses to adapt, are key. Cute animal alert! All right, so this episode, we don't really have... We have one new animal, but I feel like we've talked about it before. We actually have talked about it before, so we have no new animals this week. But we do have Momo in a bag. The carrying bag. He fits, so he sits. It's perfect. It's also Sokka's bag. It's Momo's bag. It's Momo's bag now. It's a Momo Saka carrying bag. carries it, but it's Momo's bag. <laughs> he deserves it. He works really hard for the group. I just really want a Momo in a bag mm, at my so hip. Cute. <laughs> uh, Appa's barely in this episode. He's in the window. In the window for like a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I think my favorite part of the cute animals this week, though, are the badger moles that work as giant Zambonis for the earthbending arena. Do you think they have like a country folk song in the Atlaverse about driving the badger mole? I mean, after the whole riding the badger moles out of the tunnel... I'm pretty positive that, like, Chong came up with one. You know, Zamboni and Badger Mole have the same syllable count, so you could we could totally just rewrite the Zamboni song to be about Badger Moles. There's a Zamboni song? Kelly, you're from a hockey town. 
I, you don't know the Zamboni song? I am, but I hate the cold and ice skating, so I don't know the Zamboni song. It'll be in the show notes. Okay, cool. I, I'm very much looking forward to a song about a Zamboni. <laughs> oh, I hope all the feedback we get is about how ridiculous it is that you don't know the Zamboni song. <laughs> I apologize for not knowing the Zamboni song. Um, I have a question. This has nothing to do with animals. But why is it called a Zamboni? Oh, uh, it's called a Zamboni because the guy who invented it, his last name was Zamboni. Amazing. When and was he named it invented? It after himself. Uh, oh, it was invented pretty early. Hold on. Let me let me Google this. See, I, I just feel like you would have this knowledge. And so I wanted to know. Also, Zamboni is a brand name, much like, you know, Band-Aid or Kleenex. So like what are they called if they're not like Zamboni brand? They're the... Well, I think they're all Zamboni. I don't know if there's another company that makes ice resurfacers. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but the Zamboni was invented by Frank Zamboni in 1949. Wow. Where? Paramount, California. Not where I, I expected. Yeah. Not at but... all where I expected. <laughs> Uh, it, the the first Zamboni was a lot simpler. It was like picture, uh, like a squeegee mop head. Okay. With just a tank of warm water behind it. Okay. All right. That makes sense. I guess I never really pictured what was going on underneath the giant, you know, hood and everything. I mean, underneath the giant hood are actually uh, a series of augers that chop up the top surface level of the ice. You can control yeah. and adjust the height of them to you know dig deeper or let or not as deep depending on the needs typically you have to dig deeper after figure skaters because they make little holes but after a hockey game not so much okay um and then that that ice that ice turned snow is picked up into the main body of the zamboni on you know a modern zamboni that's why they're so big it's mostly empty space as like a holding pen for the snow um, and then there's a damp, basically squeegee, you know, chamois type thing, and it lays down water and it smooths it out. And that applies a, basically a new top coat of ice surface. Wow. And there you go, listeners. When we don't have many animals, we're still going to learn things, people. And Zambonis I... are registered with the DMV. They are street legal. They get about 30 miles per hour. What? On the roadway. And if you take one to the Taco Bell drive-thru at 2 in the morning, they will serve you. And they will give you free food if they can take a picture with the Zamboni. Wow, this is all good information to have. Do you have to have a certain class of license to drive a Zamboni? You do not. A class D in most states is enough. Wow! I had a job at an ice rink and I did drive the Zamboni. <laughs> See, I, I, I knew you would know enough about Zambonis because I knew you played hockey in the past uh, and you come from a hockey town. I did not know that you've actually driven a Zamboni. So this is this is incredible. I hope the listeners are getting as much enjoyment out of this as I am because I am very excited to know this knowledge. Glad you enjoyed it. So we've talked about Toph a lot in the context of the wrestling ring. Mm -hmm. But in this episode, that's only half of her character. Yeah, we get to see her roots and where she grew up. And they track they track down the blind bandit to the Bayfongs. And the Bayfongs, their symbol is the flying boar, which are from Aang's vision in the swamp. He saw not only Toph, but the flying boar. 
And the Beifongs are the richest in the entire Earth Kingdom and completely out of touch. So out of touch. It was so frustrating seeing the level of like just sheer out of touch privilege. The way they just go, oh, Avatar, when do you think the war will be over? I mean, not that it impacts us that much, but, you know, just just that's their small talk. Mm-hmm. It's not affecting their everyday life. Mm-hmm. It just, mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And just the the little things you get about her family, so how out of touch they are, their wealth, the fact that they don't even publicly acknowledge that they have a daughter, that's awful. The fact that they can get away without even publicly acknowledging that they have a daughter. I mean, she doesn't have to go to school. They're... Such, like like you said, they're the richest people in the Earth Kingdom. Mm-hmm. You'd think that people would, but no, they're so wealthy, they can just wealth well, she, someone out of existence. She's not, allo- she's not allowed outside the walls. Yeah. The walls of her family's compound. So why would the world know about her? Just, just, just. Uh, they don't even allow her to eat hot soup. Yeah, that bothered me. Like, everything... And her her posture entirely changes around her family. Um, and I just the thing that made me snap that that makes Toph snap is when they say she is blind and tiny and helpless and fragile. And just any so patronizing any reasonable person would snap at that. Yeah, they talk about her as if she's not in the room. And I mean, especially like after Avatar Day, Aang knows what that feels like. She's not even allowed to walk in her own walled yard. By herself. They do not trust her. They do not believe her capable of anything. And I just, this is where it really takes an interesting look at her disability. And Toph does not see herself. The the miracle here is that Toph does not see herself the way that her parents see her and the way that they treat her. And that she is strong enough in herself to believe in herself and create a sense of being unapologetically tough despite everything they throw at her. She is comfortable in her blindness. She has she talks about how the badger moles found her when she was lost one time and taught her how to see and how she uses her seismic sense to see the world. And she's not afraid of the world because of this and how it helped her grow strong and how she is an incredible earthbender because of it. But her biggest limitation is her parents and the limitations that they see for her and they set for her in this world. And it's their lack of expectations for her that stunt her growth in certain aspects. She has been able to create her own world outside of them, but within the walls of the Beifong Manor, she cannot be herself. And she has been living living with this dissonance for quite some time and has been comfortable with it. And it's why she's so resistant to Aang breaking down that wall because this is the only safe way she can be herself. And if Aang brings it into the world of her parents, they'll take it away from her. She does not, they don't trust her to walk through the garden 
why should she trust them that they would treat this newly discovered power with respect? Yeah, trust goes both ways. So there, when when Toph is given the chance to explain her blindness and how she lives, it is incredibly refreshing, just like Teo's. There is no pity from Aang. There is just respect, and he simply listens. And it is really, like I said before, in the in the Northern Air Temple, it is really brilliant to just be taken as is, rather than a sense of pity. And it's... It's the difference between how the Beifongs interact with Toph and how the Mechanist interacts with Teo. In what way? In when Teo says he's going on to the front lines, his dad's excuses, his dad does not make excuses for him. His dad does not limit him. His dad builds him wings to continue to spread, like to, to grow and develop. And become his own person. Whereas Toph's parents literally want to lock her away by the end of the episode. They they don't want her to leave. They find out that she is this incredible bender. And they say, well, I guess we're just going to have to limit you even more. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. Because now you're even more of a danger to yourself. They view it as something that needs to be battled as opposed to something that is a part of her. Um, And that is what's really refreshing about the Avatar world is that it talks about disability in a way that embraces that this is who that character is. It is not necessarily this is something that that character needs to battle and fight every single day and just to brush their teeth. They are so brave. Like it's not condescending. And that is what really mattered to me when I watched this, that this show is not condescending to people who have disabilities and it's not condescending. It's not condescending to the viewers about people with disabilities so that's what that's what i really love about it at least (laughs) and from my and from my perspective as as someone with a disability i truly love that it allows the character to say no it's just a part of me it's not it's not everything i am and even though Toph's blindness is you know a part of her, uh, it's like I said, it's a part of her, but it is not all of who she is. If she wasn't blind, she'd still be the strong, cackling little girl, like smirking girl that she is. I like she'd still be who she is. I want to um, I want to keep it on on Toph and her relationship with her parents for a second because yeah. I I find myself considering a question that you know I think I interacted with a bit my first time watching this episode and then again now but I sort of brushed off to the side and and I want you to uh provide your answer to it. Do you think that the majority of the condescension and the patronization and the overprotection of an overprotection just that feels wrong to say it, it mm-hmm. like because it, that's rooted in something <laughs> good, but this is not. This is like you know too far that it's now sinister. But the but that that desire to lock Toph away from her parents. Do you think that that is mostly because they're just the sort of people who would be that way with their kid, or do you think that is because she is blind? 
I think it is a huge part because she's blind. I think another part of it is because of their station and because of who they are to the community. Um, I think... Well, like they're embarrassed by her? I think they have a sense of shame, genuinely. They think she, like, I mean, they think she's rudimentary in all her lessons. She's just, she's very quiet and everything. And they underestimate her severely. And I think there is a sense of shame that I think Toph can pick up on. Why else would would the whole world not know that she exists? I don't think it's just merely overprotection because I feel like if it was just overprotection, the world would know about her. Like even the the like local neighborhood would know that she exists. They literally say, oh, the Bayfongs don't have a kid. I feel like if it was a helicopter, helicopter parent, they'd be like, oh, yeah, they have a kid. Like they like keep her under lock and key. They straight up say they don't have a kid. There is a lot more going on there. They keep her in very specific private lessons just for the basics. And, you know, even just barely mention that with Aang. And so I think there's a lot more complicated feelings going on in her parents about Toph's disability and her place in the world. Okay, I think that's interesting because this watch through, I definitely felt like it was more about her disability. Um, and I, I very much, you know, kind of like you were saying, her the, the the biggest thing that stands in the way of her living her life is their ableism. Yep. But the first time I watched this episode, it it did come across a bit like a lot of their a, a lot of their you know overreaching was rooted in vanity and and less you know this is our daughter who can't do anything and more like this is our perfect delicate flower that we must hermetically seal so that it never wilts Mm. whereas i can see the vanity in them and maybe this is just coming from my perspective the vanity in our daughter is not quote-unquote perfect Mm. she struggles in her earthbending She's, you know, she can't see, she can't do the things that other kids can. And there's that vanity that her parents have of they have the perfect life and they don't view Toph as as perfect as they are. It's brutal. It's, yeah, it's difficult to watch. Yeah, I mean, but I think you you really need to see and process that complexity of her parents to understand where her personality is coming from and to see how her parents interact and how everything is dainty and delicate and clean to see why she rebels so hard and so you know getting the picture get it getting the full picture of her in you know with the flower in her hair Gently having soup, not too hot, uh, at the dining room table. That is important to see when Toph is given the free will, when Toph is given the reins to her own destiny and life. What is she going to do with it? And why does she go there? Battle at the end. Battle at the end. I love that there's the battle at the end. This battle at the end. Oh, so, I mean, I love my cutscenes and transitions. And the poor Toph, she must be so scared to her threatening everyone from inside a dangling metal box is just everything you ever need to know about this character. That is so Toph. That is so you. It's so me. Uh, it's just, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and she... 
I, I have a question for you in this battle at the end. What do you think Toph's motivation is to help Team Avatar in the battle at the end? I feel like there's no wrong answer. So just putting that out there. I think in the moment that she decides to help them, mm-hmm. she cares far less about helping them as like a specific action and far more about taking that final step away from her family. Yeah. I think this is going to be cheesy, so get ready. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm here for the cheese. I think it's her saying, like, the people I thought were my family, not my family. These people, I don't know, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's just total found family trope. Yeah. But like, you know, early days, it's a slow burn found family. It's a slow burn found family. It's a, it's a slow burn. <laughs> you know, got to gotta tag it right. Yep. I think that's really interesting. I, I I have a few. I have like a few different like theories. What, what do you think her motivation is? Do, do, do you think it's about the belt? Personally, I think part of it is about revenge for the belt. Like it is. <laughs> I know. It, it is like it's like I just need to show you. All of you at once mean nothing in comparison to me. There is a point of pride there for her. She's just kind of met these people and she's she's been annoyed at them for like she's she's been annoyed at Aang for most of the time. Like she was kicking him under the table, knocking the table into him, like everything. And I think genuinely one of her bigger motivations is just showing I can do it. And honestly, I think like if Earth Rumble 6 or Earth Rumble 7, if there was no Aang in, involved, if Earth Rumble 7 had just been the blind bandit in a cage match versus everyone, that would have been her element. She needs that challenge. Aang was her first cha- her first challenge. And this is the first time she's like, you know what? I can do this. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's one of her motivations. I also think she has a very interesting sense of like what she owes to people. And I think she feels she owes Aang one. She owes Aang one, just one. She'll give him one fight. She'll walk away. It won't matter to her. She can do this. I think she gets hooked a little bit more than she expects to, though. Hearing you talk about it, I do like the idea that it's about the belt. Like, it's about... Because when she goes to fight, she sidelines Aang at the get-go. And she's like, no, I'm taking all of them myself. Because she knows... That he was going to, that, you know, Sokka and Katara were going to try, and Aang was going to try, and they were all going to try to work together to take on the whole squad, and she did, like, that's her glory. She's also never worked on a team before. That's true. So, I think also part of it is, she's not used to teamwork, so it would be really difficult for her to change her style just yet. But also, that's her glory. That is her glory. Yes, yes, truly. She's like, best shot at winning this thing? Just put me in there. Just put me in, coach. Take everybody else out. Put me in. And she delivers. She delivers. Just one after the other knocked out to the same spot. Yes. Yes. Little detail. Love that. Totally didn't have to do it. But she just deposits every member of the wrestling team. And just the sheer amount of raw power that she has. She has strategy. And she has raw power. And this is, again, where I saw kind of the whole Avatar, like, momentum course correcting because of the introduction of Azula. This is the first person where you see and you're like, oh, man, could you imagine that one girl versus that one girl? What happens then? Showdown of the century. 
I also just popped into my head. This is a battle in which she may be outnumbered, but she is not outmatched. It's funny you say that because this whole time we've been talking, I've been slowly coming to the determination that this entire episode, because we've been talking about things from Toph's perspective and from Toph's perspective, Aang is our antagonist. Yeah. Yeah. He's no. not the villain. Her parents are the villain. Yeah. Our antagonist is not our villain. <laughs> Wow, almost as if we have themes. Yeah, this is this is Toph's call to adventure. I, I well, I think I, I think there's more there. This is this is really Toph's call to adventure, and I think about what you mentioned with the swamp and how the hero tries to like avoid the path, but the path keeps coming to them anyways. I forget what you called it. You had the rejection of the call. The rejection of the call. This happens. She yeah. says. Nah, I'm not going to teach you. And Aang shows up at her doorstep anyways. And then she even denies him in the garden again. And then they're captured and put in metal boxes. And she's stuck with him yet again. And even at the end of this battle at the end, she tries to walk away again and say, nope, not going to do it. She rejects three times. Magic number. Yep. Now I'm wondering who her mentor character is. I have thoughts, but not yet. Yeah. Yeah, I have thoughts too. Not yet. But this is truly her call to adventure. And it's really cool to see. I mean, this is her whole journey in the one episode. It's so condensed. It's solid. Like earthbending should be. I have a question for you about our ending here. Okay. Do you think that Toph was telling the truth when she said her father changed his mind? Absolutely not. And what leads me to believe this is partly her father's reaction when he hears her teacher say that she is the greatest earthbender that he's ever seen. And also her parents' reaction to when she kind of comes out to them with her alter ego and what she's been doing. And they shut everything down. But the final like clue clincher to me to say, you know, she's absolutely lying, her outfit, what she is wearing. She is wearing pants. She is wearing darker earth tones. She is wearing the exact opposite of what she wore when she was with her parents. She is wearing something for comfort and not for style. And I don't think if she was representing the Beifong family out in the world that they would ever let her walk out like that. And there would have been an armed guard to walk her to Appa, there would there would have been a lot more involved. So that outfit choice alone and like, eh, here's a sack of my stuff, that is her. So you don't think there's any possibility that her father saw everything that happened and realized that because maybe his daughter isn't so delicate and fragile, he could use her to capture the Avatar to sell to the Fire Nation. Nope. I think he might be just that diabolical. Really? I don't really remember how that storyline resolves itself. Okay, I do. From the first time. But like, I have that thought in my mind that maybe he's, you know, a decent chess player. Well, so when he puts the bounty out on her, she's the forethought. But the Avatar is an afterthought because to him, the Avatar is the one who put all these silly ideas in her head. He's the one who came in there and changed everything. And he has no skin in the game with the war. He's already like, you know, oh, is it going to end soon? Oh, I don't. He doesn't care either way. But Toph, his daughter, that's what matters to him. He can get a bounty on that. 
And even if he puts a bounty on on Aang for uh, along with along with Toph, I think he can double that from the Fire Nation. So it's just kind of a nice little bonus. Wherever wherever the Avatar is, that's where my daughter's going to be. Great. Great business. I don't think sense. he needs the money from the Fire Nation. I was thinking more like, you know, selling to the Fire Nation in return for his family's safety, in return for, you know, being untouched at the end of the war. His family's already safe. You don't think the Fire Nation would mow down the Beifong Manor? I think they could. Absolutely. But I think especially the way that the way that the upper class has been untouched by this, I mean, pretty sure the Beifongs are, you know, profiting on the war. Mm, that's a good point. So there's really, you know, there's no incentive. The when does the war the when does the war end question that they ask Aang? Like if they're profiting off the war, that's a totally different question now. Now it's not, you know, aloof. Oh, you know, this isn't a thing. It's a minor inconvenience. Small talk becomes like, hey, you got any insider info? Like when do the profits dry up? I mean, they have enough uh, inherited wealth that it's not really a concern. They have they have a significant amount of generational wealth. The Beifongs have been the wealthiest people in the Avatar world for centuries. Um and we'll get snippets of that going forward. Um when Toph uses her clout as a Beifong throughout the Avatar world, um you'll see just how much of an impact that name has. So just a thought I had. Maybe he's an evil genius. Maybe. I don't know. But uh I, I'm not I'm not as I'm not as married to that. I I think I think she got out on her own. She seems to know how to do that pretty easily, seeing as she's been living a double life as a, a professional wrestler for, you know, a while. Well, when you're that powerful an earthbender, just dig a tunnel. Yeah, yeah, barely need to dig. But they're the most powerful thing at the end of the episode that I love is that Avatar's love plays. And I am reminded of Toph saying how she is 12 years old and she has never had a friend before. And I just really feel this is the perfect music choice for the end of the episode because she has finally found people that will accept her for all of who she is. And she has hope. for listening to the Toff show if you liked what you heard please leave us a review on apple podcasts you can find our show notes at the slash 26 if you'd like to reach us you can send us a tweet at the pie show or email us at the pie show podcast at gmail.com next week zuko alone i'm not ready <laughs> <laughs> is your body ready for zuko alone no no it is I- i'm i'm excited I've never really dug into Zuko alone. Never thought too much about it. Oh, we're going to have fun. So, yeah. Yeah. So this was the Kelly episode. Next week's the Colton episode. (laughs) I think my notes are mainly just going to be questions. It's mainly going to be questions and like, here's a bit of trivia I found on the episode. That's it. (laughs) That's all. You'll dominate the cute animal alert, though. (laughs) 
And you really don't know the Zamboni song? No, I genuinely well, don't. Well, I went down to the local arena, asked to see the manager, man. I want to no. drive the Zamboni. Oh, no. yeah, it's it's so cheesy. Amazing. <laughs> it's on the Mighty Ducks 2 soundtrack. Wow. It's like a hockey classic. Wow. I mean. You've heard it. You've been to hockey games. They play it at yeah. intermission. Oh, I'm I'm certain I've heard it like played on an organ with no words. <laughs> because that's what we do in Boston. We just play the organ. We don't mm-hmm. we don't sing along. Mm-hmm. So, wow. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'm so excited about all this new Zamboni knowledge. 